The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Hello and welcome to Prospect Barbacast, the only baseball podcast in the world who knows that real Christmas is on January 15th. I'm Jake Mintz. That's Jordan Schusterman and Michael Farron. Open your presents. What's in there? It's- A 50 future value shortstop. <laughs> Hi, Mike Farron. What's up, dude? Good to see you, my friend. How are you? Uh, it's great to see you. I- I'm uh, glad that you guys are back from your uh, international excursions. We missed you stateside. We were scouting. We were hitting the ground. We were yeah. putting eyeballs on ball players and looking for the next generation of talent. Did you did you go to an Australian Winter League game or not? Absolutely or not. Yeah, Absolutely. Not. Did you go to a game in Mexico? Uh, I wasn't in Mexico. I was. Oh, in, I thought you were Mexico. I, I was in. So it's it's interesting. I was in uh, St. Thomas, U.S. Virgin Islands, where there ah, have yes. been a handful of future big leaguers. I did see several baseball fields, and <sighs> now, while as far as I know, there have not. Now, again, U.S. Virgin Islands is is technically the U.S. So I actually am not. I think those kids can get drafted. I'm. Pretty sure. I'm not 100% yeah. sure, right? Akil Morris and Jabari Blasha uh, and the likes. But I did see some baseball fields, but I did not see any baseball. We are going to talk about the international signing period, which opened on January 15th. Go ahead, Mike Barron. I was going to say, I actually, I was in, you, you guys will be interested in this. I was in Palm Springs this weekend, and I did not realize the California Winter League either still or does exist again which is a winter league that gets played mostly in the Palm Springs area and like Imperial County and in California that involves like their pros, their post like graduate players here. Most of them end up getting signed to go to indie ball franchises, but I was like, I missed it by a handful of days. I think it starts the 25th, but now I kind of wish that they would make us the voices of the California winter league and we could go there for six weeks and just, Mess around. I need to know. I this is not a league. This is again why we say it all the time. Like you have, you are now telling me about a baseball league I didn't know about. So this I'm, was a baseball league. I believe I was invited to participate in at one point. That's in a my bad career. sign. That would be about the level of uh, of league. I think. Yeah. I mean, let me see. Hang on. I'm going to send you the link to it. They've got. Yeah. There's yeah. a. Can you give whole, me some? Team they've games? got Trackman now. Oh, um, as a point, let me see if I can get the, uh, their website really stinks. CaliforniaWinterLeague.com. <laughs> well, at least they crushed the URL. They have a great logo though. It's a, <laughs> it's a left-handed hitter between two palm trees. Wow. That's what you can, ex- wow. Wait, this is wild. I am right? so, and here we go. We have CWL hype video. Okay. So this is not what we are going to talk about because uh, friends, what is this? Respectfully, what is this? What is this podcast called? Prospect Barbacast. <laughs> and so, with all due respect to the people who have gone on to sign with major league organizations, I think we are going to stay focused on the prospects. And on this episode, we are going to talk about a trade we did hit on a regular episode of Baseball Barbacast, the Michael Bush to Chicago trade, which also involved. Two prospects heading back LA's way uh, in outfielder Zaire Hope, left-handed pitcher Jackson Ferris. And then, as I mentioned, hinted at, the international signing period did open on Monday, January 15th. Um, and we are not going to dig too in, uh, much into the specific players, but kind of talk about that process, the international market as a whole, some of the interesting trends from recent years, um, and just things that, that have kind of piqued our interest as it relates to that part of baseball development, which is a massively important part of our game. And we have not really 
you know, even scratched the surface on that yet. So I felt like this was a great time to do that. But uh, Mike, as you reminded us, uh, we have not talked about the Michael Bush trade here together, um, particularly in a prospect context. Obviously, you heard us kind of talk about it as it related to the Dodgers and the Cubs and, you know, the Cubs, why they wanted a player like Michael Bush. And we can get into him more specifically, Dodgers trying to clear room for their 40 man. But this is prospect Barbacast, so we can talk about prospects here and there are three prospects involved in this deal. Go ahead, Jake. Before we do that, I would like to let you know that there is one big leaguer, at least, who played in the California Winter League Active? that I was able to find. Active big leaguer, Tyler Matzik. <laughs> and he was crawling <laughs> oh, his wow. way back up the chain. Okay. Tyler Matzik played in the California Winter League. There is a video of him being interviewed by the guys that Farron wants to kill off so that he can broadcast the games himself <laughs> i'm bringing you guys with me that's not we're not okay. doing it alone okay yes this is from 2018 he spent 2018 uh in the california little league winter wow. league not the california little league the, I, heard, does, I heard i heard no league, winter league winter, winter league, league. <laughs> incredible <laughs> article from the website i will 33 not walks in 26 innings pitched no matter the level of competition that is unacceptable that was tyler matzik's 2016 out of the bullpen between double and triple A with the Colorado Rockies. That's how this article starts. What a lead. Um, I mean, they are the official winter league of the Frontier League, by the way. So, Oh, so it's like I a didn't realize that. I guess, yeah. So anyway, I just thought that was cool. He was extended an invitation to spring training by the Seattle Mariners on February 7th, 2018, following his outing with the Palm Springs Chill. So Mariners first there. I know he didn't end up actually, you know, pitching in the big leagues with them, but... Damn. Oh, yeah. So, he was with the Diamondbacks at one point. He bounced around a bunch. So. He's, uh, all right. Well, I, I'm glad we covered the California Winter League. Um, let us now transition back to Major League Baseball. Uh, Mike Farron, when this trade went down between the Cubs and the Dodgers of Los Angeles, I think we saw the Michael Bush trade coming in some respects. The Cubs are an interesting landing spot. But uh, what was your uh, initial uh, takeaway here? What, what jumped out at you about this swap? I mean, I think when we assumed that Michael Bush was going to be traded, we thought he'd be traded for a big leaguer. I mean, there really wasn't a spot for him on their roster. And so we thought it would be something to, to improve the Dodgers' major league club. And they got a really good pitching prospect back in Jackson Ferris, um, who is you know, one of the better left-handed pitching prospects in the minor leagues and still a little ways away. But it was a, a healthy return that they received. They clearly needed to make some adjustments on their 40-man roster and – um, you know, the, the Cubs have a deep enough farm system that they were able to deal for a guy that they view as their everyday first baseman. And I think that's the part that's so interesting to me is that you know, Bush has been kind of a, it feels like a little bit of a square peg in defensive round holes where they've tried him at third, they've tried him in left, they've tried him at second, and nobody really seemed to feel like those were great spots, maybe left field. But first base, everybody seemed to think he could play fine defensively, and the bat should play there. And while I think there are some questions about um, you know how he handled velocity last year, uh, this is a guy who's got a pretty long track record of being a really good hitter, and it would not surprise me if he were the Cubs' everyday first baseman going forward. It reminds me an awful lot of when um, they got Anthony Rizzo, Rizzo from the Padres. Those were the same questions that there were about Rizzo. Now, granted, Rizzo was on his second organization at that point because he came up with Boston. But it's a really, really interesting move and a trade that we don't see very often where it's, what, three prospects and a reliever going, but they're, they're name prospects. They're guys who are guys. And in Bush's case, is probably going to be the Cubs' most regular first baseman this year. So on a contending team, you know, he's not a spring chicken. He's 26. So, I mean, it's time, but um, I thought that was a really fascinating move. I thought it was a good move for the Cubs to add a guy who potentially, you know, can hit towards the back part of the middle of their lineup and do so for a long time and, and probably provide, you know, average to above average value at the position. As uh, as foolish baseball pointed out, Michael Bush, the number one prospect in baseball, older than Juan Soto. Uh, so in fact, almost in a full year older than Juan Soto, um, he's just, again, he's played like 200 games in triple a over these last two seasons and performed, hasn't going to got this chance. Once the Dodgers, you know, moving Mookie Betts to second there, of course they're crowded at first, they're crowded at third, even in the corners, they clearly do not trust his defense. I likened it to, I I'm curious how you feel about my comparison 
to this, to the Von Grissom, uh, to the Von Grissom trade. Um, from the standpoint of a team and at different situations, obviously they were targeting different stuff, but a player yeah. who'd seemingly proven it at the upper levels, Bush even more so than Grissom, and just kind of found his way on the outs. And a team like the Dodgers, like the Braves, it's weird to see smart teams give up on seemingly good, useful players. But if you're going to trust teams to either backfill them, like, what am I going to tell the Braves or Dodgers they're doing something wrong? At the same time, Great, great opportunity for for both the player and the team to kind of jump in there. And th- those guys are blocked, right? So yeah. there becomes a moment where their value starts to diminish to the team that they're with. And you're getting to that point with Bush and Grissom where they have, you know, I think in Grissom's case, it's probably what, I, without looking, probably 800 to 900 plate appearances in AAA. And Bush is probably more than that even. Um, and so, or right around that, I guess, is probably about right because he did start at AA last year. So, like, that's... That you know, you you kind of have to make the decision. It's time to to add them to the roster and find a spot for them. And if they're blocked, then you have to use a prospect to be able to acquire ways that can help your organization. I the the difference is the Braves made it a bit more traditional, right? They get Chris Sale, they extend him. It's a guy that fits right into the rotation. Whereas you know, if Bush had been in a Dylan Cease deal, you know, the biggest name in a in a deal for Cease or Jesus Lazardo, I don't think we would have blinked. I think it's more that he was traded for prospects, albeit really interesting ones. I mean, like I mentioned Jackson Ferris. The other kid, Hope, is a Virginia kid who has some crazy tools. The swing and miss concern, but they gave him a you know a pretty sizable bonus in the eleventh round um, to buy him out of his college commitment. The Cubs did, and so and that was just in this past draft. So I, I'm really really interested in that trade just because it, it's not one that we see very often. We've even seen the like straight up prospect for prospect or young big leaguer for young big leaguer deal more frequently. I feel like than we we've, we've seen one, especially when you've got names like Ferris and and Bush that were involved in this, and one. especially when it's prospects going to team that wins 100 games every year yeah i'm curious do you think that the dodgers part of this trade and their at least their decision to get what they got back right because there is a version of this deal where they ask for you know like javier Assad, okay and they put him in the bullpen and he's just like a second ryan yarbrough right there are there are other versions of a return but what they did was they asked for prospects and they got prospects back do you think that's because they are they know that they're going to have fewer opportunities to bring in high 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 level talent now that they're blasting past like the luxury tax in a way hmm. that maybe they haven't before where they are like always the drafting draft. at the yeah from the draft, the draft and like less bonusable space like they the Dodgers have done an unbelievable job at developing talent while drafting at the back of the draft right but that still means that there are limited opportunities to bring in high level talent into your organization, I would be curious if that played any role into the decision. I would here. be too. I think it's a really interesting <laughs> thought. I mean, the Dodgers have been dealing with this for a few years where they've been pushed back because of their spending level. And then they end up on draft day taking like in 22, they take Dalton rushing. And we all look around at each other and go, of course the Dodgers got him. That guy's really good. Right. So like, I, th- I feel like we play that game anyway with LA in that they're, they're just good at evaluating players, but it might, I think the other thing is that, you know, you mentioned Javier Assad, who I like quite a bit. I think Assad's a pretty good young pitcher, but this cleared 40 man space. And I think it's fair to say that Jackson Ferris's ceiling at this point is higher than what Assad's is. They don't, they have an immediate need for somebody like Assad because it does feel like they're still a little short on the rotation going into the year, but you can't always get a left-handed pitching prospect, the quality of a Jackson Ferris and trade. And in order to do it, they had to give up one of the best hitting prospects in the minor leagues. So I would think that probably all those things play a little bit of a role in it, but more than anything, they got a pretty high ceiling player in return that fit their needs better. Bush was never going to get an opportunity with the Dodgers because who's he going to, is he going to supplant Mookie Betts? Was he the only, yeah, I don't, I, I didn't really Freeman? see it. Obviously, Otani complicates this in general because once you're giving the duh as you should, wait, it's like what? Once you have a DH. He's... Like now, we're not flexing anyone in. Muncie, we're okay. Now the we're Dodgers forcing him back to third. You've you know, Dave Roberts is declaring Mookie Betts the second baseman in December. 
it was very clear. And if they certainly didn't see him as a corner outfield, if they didn't care that much about the bat, right? At some point, if you believe Michael Bush was going to be like a 900 OPS guy in the big leagues, you find a way to keep him, right? But they yeah. clearly evaluated him as more of a five. I would assume, right? Yeah, yeah, and, and that's fine, and that's and, and I think that's a fair that. grade on him. That's sure. You know, those are those are guys that are like, you know, whether you you call them fives or you call them B twos, you know, depending right. on which scouting scale you use. I mean, those are league average regulars. Those are, you know, two usually like what one eight to two and a half WAR players, mm-hmm. right? So like, those are pretty good. Those are those are guys that are are everyday players in your lineup mm-hmm. that you don't really have to worry about. And that's that's the case with Bush. And sometimes you end up with really great seasons out of them. You know, and sometimes they end up being, you know, a half grade or a full grade better. So mm-hmm. I think there's there are a couple of different things that, you know, work. If the floor is, and you, you're pretty certain on the floor of Michael Bush, and it feels like everybody is, then at the worst case scenario, the Cubs for the next six years are getting – an everyday first baseman, and there's a chance that ends up maybe he ends up having a couple of like Christian Walker 2023 seasons in there, which is pretty valuable. The other thing, just to kind of close the conversation on, on this trade that I'm compelled by is I saw some some discourse from some other fans of teams that were like, okay, well, so Michael Bush was available. Michael Bush, you could see as like this safe kind of foundational hitting piece, even if he's like a fit, like how it's to me, it's not that the Dodgers were even targeting. It's that like, that was their, that was the best offer. Not that it's not a bad offer, but it tells me Mm -hmm. a lot about how highly they think of Jackson Ferris and Zyre Hope, because there are probably other teams that could offer, even if it is prospects to get Michael Bush, that could really use Michael Bush. And yet it was those two you know, that got the deal done, right? And so again, we're, we're never going to know how many deals are on the table and how many different things are are being considered. And, and, and we, we do, we do, we have reports that of course, Bush, as you mentioned, was involved in like a cease type deal. But if we are th- assuming that they were going the route of, we're going to trade Bush for prospects, yeah. the fact that Ferris and Hope was what got it done, I think says a lot about those two players in particular. Well, I, and I and I think maybe it's more that this was the best offer. So, mm-hmm. right. So if you're including Bush in packages, let's say for... Cease or Lazardo or Burns or however many, you know, starting pitchers that haven't been moved yet, but that are viewed to be on the free age or on the trade market. Maybe it tells you how high the asking price was too. Yeah. You know, I mean, Michael Bush is a pretty good prospect. I mean, he's generally in what the top 30 on most lists, right? I mean, that's a, that's a guy that's got a pretty good pedigree and you're asking for significantly more that they felt like this is the best way to make a deal. And I think that's actually a good pivot. I want to talk before we take a break about the Orioles and where they're at, because there is such an obvious move to be made for Baltimore, considering how deep their farm system is right now and how much we at least think they need a frontline starting pitcher. Packaging a couple of good position player prospects for Dylan Cease or Corbin Burns or Shane Bieber makes a lot of sense for the Baltimore Orioles. However, I believe Ken Rosenthal reported that that looks less likely now than it did earlier in the year. I guess my question for you, Mike, is like, why not? What is the thinking behind hanging on to the prospects when it is very unlikely that all of their stock rises over the next calendar year? Because there are not enough spots. Like, there are literally not enough places yeah. for these guys to play in the upper levels for Baltimore in their system. I mean, it's you have to make sure that you're pushing in for the right player, right? So I mean, you know, let's let's add Jesus Lazardo into this mix too, who's actually controllable for another year beyond Dylan Cease. He's got three years of control left and his name has been mentioned a fair amount in rumors. And certainly a number of quality infielders, including somebody who could play shortstop, would be of interest to the Marlins, you would think, right? They really don't have a great option there. John Birdie's a nice utility player, but they don't have a short or really long-term answer right now at short. So I think some of it has to do with we are assuming that the guys that have made it to the big leagues are going to continue to establish themselves as regulars, right? So, like, we feel pretty good about Gunnar Henderson, right? Like, let's check that box, right? He's going to be That doesn't good. count. Yeah, so he's he's a different beast, but like Jordan Westberg, do we know for sure? Like, do we know that Jackson Holiday is going to be ready right away to begin the season? And what happens if he struggles defensively? Well, Joey Ortiz is 
probably their best defender at shortstop in the minor leagues. And so you could see a situation where it's like, yeah, we want to hold on to him. I think it's one of the reasons why they haven't traded Jorge Mateo, right, is because they need to be able to have insurance. I think it gives you, just like any kind of depth does, it gives you more opportunities to be right because not all of these players are going to work out. You have to make sure that you're evaluating your system right. And maybe it's tougher, and I don't know that this is the case, but maybe it's tougher if you're sitting in front office and everybody grades out pretty similarly to try and decide which ones you're really going to hang your hat on. You know, if there's a clear difference between, like if it was all Jackson Holidays and I don't know. I mean, let's take a uh, like Ryan McKenna's, right? Like McKenna's a nice extra outfielder, right? Like that's easy to draw the separation between them. But if everybody kind of grades out the same, I think it can be difficult. I think it's tough. Like if you look at them, even in the outfielders, right? They have a lot. A oh, the outfield is even crazier. The outfield's crazier because they're almost certainly Baltimore is going into the season with Mullins, Anthony Santander, and Austin, Austin Hayes. Hayes. Mm-hmm. Austin Hayes, yeah. Right. Their DH spot is going to be Mountcastle and Ryan O'Hearn, and maybe they add another hitter there, right? Hessian Kurstad's going to be up this, at some point, maybe even at the start of the year. That gives them, okay, just outfielders. Kobe Mayo, Kurstad, Colton Kowser, Dylan Beavers, Bradfield Jr., Judd Fabian, Hudson Haskin. Right. Like, that's seven, like... And, right, and, and ahead, Mayo bro. might be their first baseman long term, right? Or Kershaw might be their first baseman long term, you know. And Kowser, like the White Sox, are a great example of this, right? The White Sox desperately need a right fielder, right. and Kowser would certainly seem to fit what they need. And maybe they're okay with moving Kowser, but maybe it's like if it's Kowser and Ortiz, all of a sudden you're Baltimore and you're like, and you want two more pieces? Like those are guys that we all grade out as and- above average regulars, you know, or average regulars and. Average regulars are really good players. Right. And and but that's the other thing as we tie it back to Bush is especially when I think about Westberg, none of those guys have actually proven it, including Bush. Right. Right. At the highest level yet. And even go back going back to Grissom, he had at least shown some amount of stretch in the big list. And not it's still a small sample, but that's the other thing. You think you know because they've just they've all destroyed AAA as all of these Orioles guys have and as Michael Bush did. And to your point, I mean, like Bush, at some point you're at 900 AAA at bats. Doesn't mean it's a guarantee, but you do have to make a decision. Now the Orioles 40 man roster is a little bit different than the Dodgers 40 man roster, but that's the other thing we talk about the Orioles internal evaluations, and then we talk about a team like the White Sox who would be interested. How do they line up? You know, cows are cursed at. Maybe they right. think Beavers is the the ultimate prize, and and the Orioles think that he's the one they can't let go. Let alone trying to sort through Westberg and Ortiz and Norby, and oh my gosh, like it goes on and on and on. I just think to Jake's point, and as you related back to Bush, like they maybe it's not now, but even in a few months, there will be some decisions that have to be made, and right. maybe that that's right. what the Orioles are deciding that it's actually this upcoming deadline when all of these guys will have already shown it or not in AAA and they're going to have to make a decision. But I, it's just, it seems Im- impractical <laughs> to be yeah. holding on to this many guys in the upper levels for this long. Listen, I understand why they're doing it. As a talk show host, I would much prefer that they were aggressive, <laughs> right? And actually as a fan, because I, I think we've talked about this before, the joy being sucked out of the trade market by everybody other than Jerry Depoto really sucks. Like trades are way more fun than free agents. Oh, it's not like from an entertainment value standpoint, it's great. And I guess I understand where they're coming from. But the thing is, is that like you run the risk of over-evaluating all your guys. You know what I mean? Like they're not going to get, okay, fine. You want to take Jackson holiday and Samuel Basawa and Colby Mayo off the table, which it sounds like they have. Okay, great. Well, you still have a ton of these guys. There's not going to be spots for everyone. Now, maybe some of their concern is that ownership won't give them the financial support that they need to either extend their key players or you know they need to keep as many options open because they won't be able to push their payroll to levels that they did under John Angelos' father. And I think that that's reasonable based on what we've seen because if it felt like they, they were going to expand the payroll, they would have done it in free agency, right, over the course of the last two years to add that starter that we feel like they need. 
or or a key reliever, like or spend on Josh Hader, right, to replace Bautista, something, anything. But you wonder how much that financial equation factors into it. And that's something that modern front offices are very concerned about is, okay, how does this, you know, a lot of times it gets, it gets put up as surplus value, but every dollar you don't spend on free agency um, is a dollar that you've basically saved for your owners. And I had an executive, I may have shared this guy with you guys before who once told me, he's like, it doesn't matter. Like I'm not gonna, never going to get fired for a trade that I make, but I will get fired for a bad free agent signing. Mm-hmm. Like That's the thing that's going to get me is if I overpay for a free agent and he stinks here, those dollar figures are right there for the owner to see. And if you're not making your boss money, they ain't going to be happy with you. Which is so interesting because from an optics standpoint, I totally get that. And the internal dynamics of a front office and the relationship with the ownership makes so much sense that the free agency is what scares is what scares the GMs, right, in that sense, right? But, like, at the same time, it, it's not like you have to be some sort of hardcore niche fan to find the trades that haunt teams to an extreme degree, right? Right. And so that's what's so fascinating, whereas it's like, I mean, you have the extreme examples of Fernando Tatis Jr. and like whatever the guys who are trading in rookie ball and become, but even more seemingly lower level, like I think about a team like Cleveland, who has just traded away some really, really talented players. And it's like- two outfielders in the last year, <laughs> and they don't have any outfielders. Right. Like, like that's not even including Junior Caminero, right? Like there's so many right. versions of these. And it's like, but but somehow you're right that the optics are not as bad as, oh God, this contract really sucks because I have to watch this guy on my major league team. It is a very, very interesting dynamic that that I well, do agree with. I, and, you know, and then that can help to, to define some of the way the offseason markets look anyway, I think yeah. both sides. So you're afraid to overpay in free agency because it's going to cost you your job, but then you're also afraid to trade your top flight prospects in a deal because then it's going to cost you personnel that could backfill if you make a mistake there. Like it's, It almost becomes paralysis by analysis. Right. Right. I wish teams were more ex- aggressive. You know, I wish there was a way to bring back the trade market. I love major leaguer for major leaguer trades, need for need basis. We've deals, seen again, like in some ways couple. it feels like we've we've moved back towards that, but it's still so slow and obviously when you're at this point in the offseason, once you've uh, once you're approaching February, now we're in full staring contest mode because the free agent market and the trade market are basically stuck frozen by each other. And so right. in that sense, that's now we're really stuck in that. And, in that regard. and listen, there's going to be no real way to speed it up. I think that's the other problem is I know everybody wants them to create some sort of a deadline for free agency. The players aren't going to go for that. And it's understandable why, if you really think about it, because you're putting restrictions on the market. I know we kind of saw that with the lockout winter where it didn't really impact the dollars, but I certainly understand why they would not want that. And, it's never going to be like the other sports because we don't have a cap. And that's what drives the NFL and NBA free agency lasting, like like basically binging at White Castle, right? Is like everything's done in like 25 minutes and then you're full and you've gorged yourself and then maybe you're looking for, you know, a couple of French fries in the seat cushion right. beyond that. And, and that's just not going to happen in an uncapped league. Like there's no finite dollar amount to be spent. And so that helps to drag it out as well. So I wish there was a way to make it just really move. And I wish there was a way to incentivize trading. Like those are the things that I really wish could happen, but I'm not optimistic that they, that anything can occur that will make them. Uh, Prove us wrong. Baseball teams. We will be right back. Uh, We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back on prospect Barbicast talking about the international signing period. And welcome back to Prospect Barbacast. Jake Mintz, Jordan Schuster, and Mike Farron. Guys, I apologize if the following message gets you down, but it is time to talk about the International Players Anthem. Uh, January 15th, every year, is a big day in our league. The Jesse draft, Sanchez Day. Jesse Sanchez Day. Yom ha Jesse Sanchez. Jesse Sanchez, <laughs> who works for MLB.com and reports... A great majority of the signings that occur. Before we talk about this year's class, 
I think it's probably worth reviewing the system as a whole. I think most casual baseball fans have a good understanding of how amateur prospects from the United States and Canada enter our world. The international setup is a little hazier, and I think it would behoove us to kind of give it a brief overview. So who wants to give it a crack? <laughs> it's all very simple. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's 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 both. It is simple in some respects. And then once you start getting into the financials, it gets uh, a lot less simple. But I guess the 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 first place to start is as with the draft, there is a certain amount of money that teams are allotted to be able to spend on bonuses to be given to international players. So that is maybe a first place to start, which is that teams are depending on, again, related to free agency. Sometimes if you spend too much free agency, your payroll or, you know, payroll, whatever, your pool can be smaller. But generally, there is a range uh, that teams are able to spend on international players bonuses between four and a half to seven and a half million dollars. This is not a lot of money. It's really not a lot of money. But these are bonuses being given to players for the most part, who are 16 uh, and 17 years old. Uh, these are players who, that, that makes up the majority of the international market. They must have been they must have turned uh, 16 before uh, September 1st uh, of the following year. So basically, for this year's class, uh, according to Elmwood Pipeline, these are players born between September 1st, 2006 and August 31st, 2007. So, yes, uh, Mike Farron, how do you feel about it? I'm just going to read those hits again. I started at SiriusXM in Ooh. July of 2007. That's <laughs> okay, how I so feel again, about it. Wow. Now, again, players older than this are eligible, whatever, but the, the, the pri pri primarily these are players, particularly in the Dominican and Venezuela, born again between September 1st, 2006, August 31st, 2007. Now, again, the Dominican Republic and Venezuela makes up the bulk of this international market. Of course, we do have players sometimes, sometimes from Japan and Korea. But for this day in particular, we're going to focus on, on the Latin American markets. And so what that means is that teams have the now. Yes, the, the most important thing is, OK, everyone is signing yesterday, right? Oh, that seems strange. How did they all come to agreements on the exact same day? Well, because teams and players come to agreements a healthy amount of time before then. Now, MLB is trying to crack down on the length of time which ahead of their actual signing period that teams are able to come to, to deals. But the point is, is that teams have been scouting these players for at least a year and they've come to agreements well in advance of the signing period opening on January 15th. And what that means is that on this day, when the signing period officially opens, the teams essentially get to announce their international signing classes. And for the most part, we get reporting from people like Jesse Sanchez and Ben Badler at Baseball America about how much the top players in the class sign for because teams basically have the decision with their pool of money to either spread it out over you know a group of five to 15 players. And most teams are going to sign that many players anyway, or kind of go big on one of the top players in the class usually for a signing bonus of upwards of three, four. Sometimes in this case, the top bonus in this year's class, Jose Perdomo with the Braves, a $5 million signing bonus. So generally, as with the draft, the, the numbers are going to be around the same. The top bonuses, we have, you know, 50 or so million dollar bonuses every year. But Mike, as, as we kind of think about this big picture, what does this day kind of mean for each team's, you know, player development apparatus? And what, how do you think it is, like, what is the most important part of, well, of this day this week? I think to understand it, it, it's probably the closest to college recruiting that we have, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it, it's, I mean, if you think about it, uh, and at least in baseball, it has changed. I'm not sure if it has in basketball now where you're essentially getting players to commit to you several years before they're going to show up on campus. And, you know, like when I worked in, in Iowa years and years ago, like Kirk Heinrich committed to... Iowa State as an eighth grader, right? Like, and they ended up at Kansas, obviously. I mean, there were coaching changes and whatnot. But the teams have all the power in it in the sense that they can walk away from the deal at any time, even though they have, you know, essentially a handshake agreement that that they're going to sign that player on January 15th, right after they've turned 16. So I think that's part of the understanding. In terms of depth, I mean, it adds a lot of players to your organization, and ones that at least for right now are outside the domestic player cap, I believe, in terms of the number of players you're supposed to have in the organization. And, and since a number of 
of the players signed for bonuses that don't count against the cap, which means that they're under $10,000. And you have to remember that, that the Dominican Republic and Venezuela, where the vast majority of the players come from, are third world countries. That's They're able to take advantage of the fact that there, that there are young players there. Now, sometimes you end up with... You know, like what I think Fran Bravaldo has got ten grand, and um, you know, I think like with Reynaldo Lopez got like fifty thousand dollars or something like that. You end up with these players that have these five figure bonuses. Uh, uh, Tehran Guerrero, you remember Tehran Guerrero? Mm-hmm. I think he just signed a minor league deal with somebody. Yep. Played with the Padres and the Marlins, and he a little with the White Sox and threw a hundred miles an hour. He was signed for like three grand out of Columbia, yep. right? Like a crazy low number. So you have these deals that can add a lot of really inexperienced talent to your organization really, really quickly with the hopes that you're going to, you know, strike it big. And sometimes you end up with you spending a good chunk of the money on one player, as as you mentioned, the Braves, the Padres, the Cubs all did that to big degrees, maybe the Mariners to a lesser extent with Dowell Joseph, they gave $3 million. Um, or you can kind of spread it out over a bunch of different players and hope that they hit. So there's there's a couple of different philosophies within it, but it adds a lot of really, really young talent to your organization that you're hoping ends up being able to either help your major league team directly or indirectly if they're available via trade, even knowing that the vast majority of players are never going to pan out. And after a couple of years, they're going to be back looking for jobs in the Dominican, in which is not always easy. Although I will say I think teams have done a very good job of um, trying to create uh, education for players. I think the Mets just had something like 160 players graduate from their academy or have had 160 players graduate from their academy. Like a high school education in the Dominican Republic is a big deal. Mm-hmm. And I also, think from yeah. just from Go like ahead. a perspective of caring about this specific day, yeah. it is different than following the draft, right? Because when you watch the MLB draft, there's just a ton of footage of players playing games. And when it comes to the college players, like with Paul Skeens, right, there was so much hype built up because we saw him competing, right? We saw him yeah. on television. We don't get that chance with the international players for a variety of reasons, because they're younger, because it's international. And because, frankly, a lot of these kids aren't playing in too many games. It's a lot of showcases. It's a lot of workouts. It's a lot of practice, right? It's not the same type of setup. And for that reason, it's like, it's hard as a fan of a team to click on a list and be like, hell yeah, we got the seventh best guy, right? Like, it's just kind of a different feeling. So that's one bucket. But the other bucket that I think is important to remember and where I have conflicted feelings is like, this is the best day in a lot of people's lives in the world of baseball. A lot of these players are fulfilling a dream. And this day is the wreck. It's like, not just step one. I mean- this is it. They've made it. If these kids are getting paid $1.9 million, obviously they want to be big leaguers. But I think we lose track as stateside gringos that this is already success for a lot of these kids. It is already life-changing money. It is already a life-changing experience. Um, and I think it is important to both hold that in one hand and also understand that there is an exploitative part of this. you know, And that we have to hold those thoughts simultaneously in our brains. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the difficult part in all of this is that you mentioned the exploitative and and a lot of times that has in the past extended to the secondary agents that work in the in Latin American countries that a lot of times are called buscones. They're they're kind of trainer agents that help the players into their academies and help them improve, but then also take a big cut of their signing bonus. And that's part of what the league has really tried to push for in attempting to get an international draft. Um, This is the most free market, even though there's restrictions on spending of of amateur player procurement in, in baseball. But at the same time, it is the one that is the most fraught with um, opportunities for um, shenanigans, I don't know if I want to turn this into like a conversation about the international draft, but I will say that my mind has been changed. Mine is too. I'm it's in favor un- of it. Yeah. And it's unfortunate because the way we got here, I mean, there are tons of shenanigans. Like shenanigans can be any number of things. It can be, you know, kids on PEDs and cycling off of it before they turn 15. It can be early deals with kids who are 13 that then get reneged 
uh, when they're turned 50. And like, there's all these, th- th- I just want to give people well, a sense for the shenanigans. Yeah. Or the but Braves. What, I mean, we should talk about the Braves situation from several years ago that cost right. their general manager, the job where they were, you know, you pay, play payer player X, you know, a $2 million bonus, but only a portion of that was going to player X. A whole bunch of other money was going to other players that you signed at lower numbers. That's illegal. Like it's illegal in every sense of the word, right. but that's the kind of stuff that's going on. Exactly. Now, my issue is it is in MLB's best interest, okay, to have an international draft from a spending perspective. And so where I'm at is MLB saying, this situation is out of hand. How did it get like this? We need to fix it with an international draft is, is kind of unfair to me because they're the institution that has the responsibility to remedy some of the bad things going on down there. But it's not in their interest to do so because they want to implement a draft. And now we have reached a point where that strategy, at least in my mind, and I'm happy to hear from people who disagree with this, like text me, give me a call. Yeah. It feels like the simplest way now to fix what's going on, right? To standardize things. It is the safest. It's going to be the best for the kids. Now, that's going to mean that they don't have the autonomy to choose where they want to play. And that sucks. But that's what MLB wants. And they have created a situation where the only path forward feels like an international draft. Yeah. And also the other thing about it is, while yes, it is a a free market in the sense that in theory, any of these players can sign with any of these teams. Ultimately, first of all, these are literal kids that are having to make these decisions or their families are making these decisions. Like there's a lot and there's so many things involved with what the deal that ends up being made in terms of what the number is and when that deal is going to like, to say that this is the same thing as an MLB free agent or even an 18-year-old kid picking where he's going to school is just not accurate, right? Like there's just mm-hmm. so many other layers and that's what unfortunately allows for some problematic, you know, sequence of, of events. But at the same time, you know, there is something about where, and you hear from players who, who go on to become major leaders talking about when they first signed, sometimes being like, yeah, like I was most comfortable with this team because I trusted this scout and I tr- and I trusted this academy and I trusted these things and and sometimes those are those are good positive stories with happy endings right but ultimately as we stand now there's still so much ugliness uh behind it now to Jake's point it is still a very positive day in the lives of a lot of these kids but I can also understand you know from the league's perspective it, it's a really challenging issue yeah and I think I think the key in this is understanding that this is not like something that is a recent creation where where totally. all of this is happening behind the scenes. I know it is very popular to uh, to blame everything on the current system of Big B baseball, but this it goes back well beyond you know Bud Selig's tenure, even in terms of how long there has been issues in the international market and how it has changed. Now, the spending restrictions are relatively new. They're only within, what, the last 15 years Mm -hmm. that that's happened. And the really stringent ones are only in the last couple of CBAs, collective bargaining agreements. But this has been a long-term problem that, that I guess the league could have stepped in and said, hey, we can make this better early on. But it's also a lot, it's a lot more, yeah, I believe it to be much more difficult to try and um, con- to and control is not the word I'm looking for um, to to alleviate some of those concerns and deal with that situation in a foreign country than where you're based, where where all of your offices and information is based. Not that the league doesn't have people that work in the Dominican or Venezuela. It's just there's there are a lot of disconnects, there are a lot of cultural disconnects, there's all those things that are different, and it just makes it harder to get on top of that and for a long time it wasn't really a priority so and that's um that's the other real issue as we as we talk about international draft is that unfortunately it's pretty far down the list of focuses for the players union and for like and that's why it sometimes ends up getting thrown in as just like this thing as a bargaining chip for one side or the other and that's that's not how it should be treated because ultimately as we zoom back out and talk about the importance of this in a in a very simple way this is just a lot of the best players in our league are are, are entering through this system right 
And so this is an extremely important area of the baseball world, just in a functional way and not just in the way that, that of course, that these it's a huge deal for mm-hmm. these kids who are signing for all this money, but in a way that's just like, this is how talent, and it's not changing. We've only had even more examples of some of the players, especially when you consider that the, 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 the real phenoms in our game are often these players because they start earlier. And when they are able to come over and start their career at 16 or 17, the way Ethan Salas did with San Diego this past year and already reached double, that's just not possible for domestic players in the way that it is for an Acuna, for a right. Vlad Jr., for a J-Rod, right? And now Ethan Salas. Like, that's an exciting thing, and that's also why it is so important and why it is worth focusing on the players who are at the top of the class because sometimes they are exactly who they're supposed to be, and sometimes it's, it's a little bit more surprising. One more thing before we talk about specifics at the top of the class. <clears throat> if you take a look at any list, you will notice how few pitchers there are on yes. the list. Yeah. And that is something that is important to note because the game has shifted in that way. Pitchers are developing later on. And teams have learned that signing or agreeing to sign a 14-year-old kid to pitch is maybe not, you know, going it doesn't make sense financially or at least giving them seven figures to yeah it doesn't make sense and so you kind of wait for a kid to mature physically a little bit later and that's when you start to see international pitchers signing more go ahead i think that's actually one of the more fascinating parts of scouting and player development now is that i think that expense extends to the domestic draft to some degree too yeah where it's i think there is this feeling that you can find pitching anywhere right like the astros are a great example of it internationally with christian javier and framber valdez and luis garcia who were all what in their 20s when they signed which is really old for an international free agent and they got very small bonuses and have helped them win you know multiple pennants and world series championship and a world series championship but so like there's that but you also see it in the draft like when we get to talking about the draft for this season, you're we're not going to talk about many prep arms near the top because teams have decided that there's better ways to invest their money um, in and bet on those players. And if you can try and acquire a guy that has good stuff later in the draft, you know, Zach Gallon was a fourth rounder right out of college, which wasn't necessarily a super low pick, but it's not it's a guy that was getting a low six figure bonus versus getting, you know, five or six million dollars. But it's it's a I, I agree. It is it is an interesting uh, kind of development from the standpoint of, of the whole league. And if you look at the draft, it's true. However, you look at the draft and there are pitchers that get taken in the first round, like a handful of them. Whereas if you look at the top 100 bonuses on the, you know, you know, uh, Baseball America publishes, you know, the list of the top 100 bonuses basically for for like for the class, um, even if they don't have the exact amounts. And I'm looking at it here and I believe of the top 100, let's see, I think five of them were pitchers. Think about that, right? Like that's, but but teams have, and, and none of them, I, I, I don't believe we have a bonus of even a million dollars for a pitcher in this year's class. So that's that says a lot, right? I think that the top bonus that I saw was a right-handed pitcher named Brandley Franco, uh, from the Dominican signing for 800,000 with St. Louis as the 46th largest bonus in the class, right? So for the most part, it's shortstops, center fielders, uh, and the like. And then that makes sense, right? Especially at that age, you're drafting athletes, you're drafting upside or you're signing, excuse me. Um, and that's, and that's definitely what, what teams are targeting now in terms of other individual players. I mean, I agree with you, Jake, that like, I think every year with the international class, only a handful actually break through to the mainstream. And usually it's the the top guy or two. And sometimes it's, it's just one. There's three ways you can break through. Okay. Mm-hmm. One is the Yankees sign you. Okay. That's a good that's, <laughs> yeah. that's the easiest way to do it. I highly recommend that. Yes. Path. Like Jason Dominguez, pretty good. Even even Roderick Arias last year, I would say, uh, or or uh, or that was two years ago. I guess last year was was Maya was the other one who was one of the top guys. But yes, the Yankees certainly, and the Yankees do not have one of the top guys this year which is right. at least mildly interesting. So um, that's helpful. Yes. Okay. Have the Yankees the, the, sign you. Number yes. two is dad was a big leaguer. That's another way to do it. Okay. Yep. Uh, Vlad Guerrero Jr. And this is a good way to talk about Vladdy Miguel, mm-hmm. Vlad Guerrero uh, Jr.'s half brother. Mm-hmm. He's fine. He's all right. You got $100,000. He's okay. Right. Like, 
and he he seems to be in the category of very physically mature. <laughs> and so he can hit the ball a long way. Can he actually hit like good pitching? Who knows? Uh, we'll no find out. A hundred thousand dollars is like uh, okay, yeah, you're you're something, but I'm yeah. not. <laughs> to get he's that's not, what Acuna got. You yeah, know, like for sure. But he, but in this case, no one at this point is considering him a top uh, right. prospect in this class. And then the other way is you, you're just the top guy in the class because then it's if you're the no doubt everyone agrees you're the top guy in the class guy, mm-hmm. then you're at the top of every list. You're mm-hmm. On the, co- on the top of MLB.com, and you're the dude. And we do have a guy in that class, or in this class, who is that. Yes, which is interesting because he did not receive the largest bonus, although it does seem as if he is being highly, strongly considered to be the guy in this class, and that is shortstop switch hitter uh, Leo Dallas DeVries, also signing with the San Diego Padres, who've certainly made it <laughs> something of a tradition to sign you know, guys at the very top of the class. And he gets a reportedly $4.2 million bonus. The Braves signed a shortstop named Jose Perdomo from Venezuela for $5 million. Now, again, this is an example of when were those deals agreed to? Possibly when Jose Perdomo was considered the top. There's all kinds of dynamics. We don't have to read too much into it. But, Mike, is it fair to say that from the people you've talked to, and, and, and really, I mean, yeah. DeVries is the guy in this year's class. Yeah, it's two years in a row that they've signed what appears to be the top player in the class. You know, last year, Ethan Salas made it all the way to double A as a teenager, um, which was I mean, part of the reason that he made it to double A was because they kind of took all of their best prospects and put them in double A at the end of the season. Yeah, but for him to so even to get work together. to yeah. A ball as For him crazy. to get to America I mean, he, is He nuts. was the first, I think, 16-year-old to play in the Midwest League since Julio Arias, if I remember yep, right. That like right. that was, um, So it had been a long time since somebody had done that. Um, and DeVries is you know, is that guy. I think Eric Long and Hagen said that he was he had a, uh, an evaluator not with the uh, Padres who said that he was one of the best international prospects in the last five to ten years. Now, you know, Salas certainly fits that mold. Jason Dominguez was one of those guys. I mean, he was called the Martian before he even signed with the Yankees, right? Like, so you're you're talking about that kind of rarefied air when you're talking about the way DeVries is viewed. But again, it's like we, you know, I'm, I am old enough now to remember that like when Michael, you got $4 million from the A's, he was the best pitching prospect that anyone had ever seen coming out of the Dominican Republic. And, you know, you know, it did pitch in the big leagues, but a little, (laughs) a little, but again, here's the thing. You don't even have to go back that far, right? Like you go back a handful of years and you'll find guys who signed for two, three, $4 million who never got even sniffed double A, right? And so that's that's the volatility that we're talking about. But it doesn't mean we can't get excited for for you know players who are exhibiting these level of tools, uh, you know that DeVries clearly has. But it's just there's hardly a guarantee. And in the way that we've seen guys like Juan Soto and guys like Julio Rodriguez, who in their class, I believe they both signed for like 1.5 uh, in their respective class. Someone in that tier between one and two million will be a top 100 prospect at this time next year, and we just don't know which one it is yet, right? That's just so. So let me let me throw this one at you. So this is this is Jesse Sanchez's top 30 list from 2019, Mm -hmm. right? Okay, Mm -hmm. so these are guys that should be into the top part of the the uh, minor leagues now, or certainly should be guys that that were noticed. Jason Dominguez, right? Mm -hmm. He got the biggest bonus. Tied with Robert uh, Poisson of the A's, who has not. Not yet, even close. Right? I don't even know. He was a non-prospect pretty quickly, I would say. Yeah. Uh, Byron Laura with the, the Rangers, um, nothing. Rangers got, what, over $4 million? Nothing. Not much there. Like, you don't see this at the top of the draft, right? Luis Rodriguez with the Dodgers. Eric Pena. Nothing. Eric Pena with the Royals, right? Yeah. So, now, there are some other guys. Emmanuel Rodriguez, really intriguing guy with big power for the Twins, yeah. right? Jose Salas, who is Ethan Salas's older brother, was a key part of the Pablo Lopez deal last year with the Twins. Mm-hmm. Like, he's an interesting player. Kevin Made was a guy that the Cubs traded at the deadline last year to get Jamer Candelario. Mm-hmm. Adele Amador got a million and a half from the Rockies. He's their best prospect. So, like, there are some guys in there that you look at and go, okay, this is really interesting. Mm-hmm. But it is far more. It is far more fraught with misses, in part because you're dealing with sixteen-year-olds or younger when these deals were yeah. committed, right? And so that's the thing. So, listen, if you're a fan of a team and you sign, you know, you're a 
D-backs fan and you see they signed Belfi Rivera and Adriel Radney, it's like, great. Like, you can be excited. But, like, one of those guys might never play an A-ball and one of them might be a top 100 prospect in two years. So we'll find out and then that's that's what happens. Um, but I will say that, like, the last topic I want to say before we, before we wrap here is, is about your uh, beloved Baltimore Orioles, Jake. Because the other thing is we talked about sort of the – the themes or trends involving teams kind of being not scared off, but deciding, okay, it's not worth investing the bigger bonuses in, in pitching. But the other thing is just to look, okay, well, what teams are involved at the top of the market? We mentioned teams like the Padres and the Yankees who have kind of gone the route or Braves gone the route of let's, let's blow it all on, on the top guy or one of the top five guys. But then you also left to look at the other thing, the other side of things. And that there's some teams like Baltimore who have historically essentially opted out of this market entirely. Now, the Orioles are the most extreme example, but there are some other teams like the Marlins who have signed very few at the top. The Pirates have also not spent as much you know, in this arena as you would expect, at least not at the top end. As you kind of look over the last 10 years, Orioles goes back even farther. We're recording this on the day where the Orioles announced the opening of their brand new academy in the Dominican Republic. And we're also talking about this. We're going to talk about top 100 prospects coming here soon. They have a catching prospect named Samuel Basayo. A Dominican catcher, not a lot of those, who's one of the top prospects in baseball. He, they gave him a big bonus a couple of years ago, and they are already seeing, you know, they're already clearly benefiting from that in a very real way. Not that they needed more hitting prospects. And this is a huge deal. Like, this is a kind of a real example of the Orioles talked about today, all the rhetoric coming out of the Orioles today. Kobe Perez talking about how much of a big difference it can be if the if the deals are similar, then they might go to the the academy that seems like a better place to live for a couple of years. Mike Elias calling it, you know, the most important development for the Orioles front office of, of the group that they've had over the last five years. Like that's what it means from if we focus on the baseball standpoint here, mm-hmm. it is a huge deal to actually be participating, investing, committing to making this a real part of your operation. Because to to just be opting out of that for years is is shocking in retrospect and explains a lot about how the Orioles ended up in a very bad place. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to mention. Well, and I think the other part of it is that when you hear teams talk about investing in infrastructure, this is what they're investing in, right? Yes. The Brewers have an academy that's opening on, on January 18th, mm-hmm. right? So, um, you know, they've invested in it. And I think, and this was one of the, the comments, I think it was, was Colby Perez is the, the international mm-hmm. scouting director for the, the um, Orioles. And he talked a little bit about, you know, how the academy can make a difference. I had an owner a few years ago talking about this, saying that investment in these, that this was the, again, going back to using the college reference Mm -hmm. this was the closest you could get to like college recruiting right where you can invest in facilities all the bells and whistles and the facilities and all of that and you can you know if the money's going to be close between a couple of different teams then maybe just maybe it's your facilities and your sales pitch and your recruiting efforts that pushes it over the top uh to be able to land the players that you want and i and that part of it is kind of interesting and and, i mean i enjoy college recruiting too um so so i find that that i thought it was a really interesting comment because he was a big booster for his school and when he said that to me i was like man that makes a lot of sense is like this is the same thing that you're dealing with and it's the same age of kid you're dealing with right at that level right And, and and so you're you're trying to what are the things that are going to impress them playstations for everyone yeah it's it's it it seems goofy but like that's totally a real thing and that's not necessarily a bad thing and so not to mention like the orioles it's one thing to like not have a flashy new academy it's nothing to literally not sign players from or giving out almost any money to players from the dominican from venezuela whatsoever but you have to start the footprint so not that they needed the help because obviously they've done so well in the draft recently but this is a this is a big deal Jake, what would have been the value added that a team could have shown you at age 16 that you would have been like, I'm in. I don't care about anybody else. This is what you would sold you on. When I was 16 years old, this was the most important thing. Oh, man. I'm trying to think like what. This yeah, really gives you a sense for how old un- you are. Uncool of a kid. If I was like tickets in the pit to see cold play front row. <laughs> I would have been like, I'm oh, so you're looking you. for more like, like, like you know, gifts on the side, not as much like what is the actual campus giving you? Right. That's I a, have. Yeah. There's a Chris Martin hologram in the middle of the of the of the communal area, like the pirates in Pirate City had a ping pong table, and that was yeah. like, ooh, <laughs> ping pong. But like, I don't know what kids like. What do kids like these days? They like yeah. gaming. 
They like, you're they coach like, kids. How do you not know what kids <laughs> like? They like Roblox. I got one Ooh, kid who likes yeah. Pokemon. You know, yeah. Roblox. No free ads. No, I can't. I love the idea of like you sign a kid. This it's like you get free Minecraft points. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I would say I know that like again. Now we're just Dominican kids. Dominicans that love anime more than American kids do. I would say. Yeah. That's like I didn't know that. people like like Julio Rodriguez was a bit like actively making anime references. Ellie also like this is something now again I don't know how you could how you could um, leverage this. I don't know exactly what you're offering. I just know that that's something uh, that uh, yeah Naruto's. I mean deal. maybe it's like on a loop or maybe you can <laughs> you use that, it to create that's what's on like the a, five million televisions in your in your player yeah, lounge in Boca Chica. Yeah, or like you paint a mural, right? <laughs> that, that is. Yeah, who knows? But anyway, this is the, this is the kind of thing. Like I, I am interested in like talking to the people tasked with designing these buildings, right? Like yeah. of course you want to have a safe place where people look like they can be comfortable and have fun and whatever. Um, but yeah, what what are the what are the little the details? I'm 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 curious about that. I mean, I I think it's a reasonable question to ask kids in in the U.S. too. Sure. And now NIL is obviously a big right, right. thing, but it's like, why did you decide to go to Alabama for football? It's well because well, like everybody got a TV in their locker, right? <laughs> oh well, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Um. Anyway, so that's those are just some of the uh, some of the bigger. Again, this is this is such a big topic, and uh, you can't really can't really uh boil it down to anything individually but i encourage everyone to to check out of course jesse sanchez um baseball america covers this really well uh it, it is a very exciting day and 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 seeing the players and, and seeing the names who will very soon show up i mean again the salas cases are, are extreme but some of these players will will get on the radar a lot faster than i think uh even even 10 years ago i feel like i feel like these guys we do have ways to access and learn about these players a lot faster than we did um even even a decade ago so in that sense it is a very exciting day to have some more baseball players names to cram into our craniums gentlemen any uh, final thoughts before we say goodbye on this edition of prospect barbie cast mike no, no i have no, no thoughts no thoughts right, we're done uh my friend thank you jake Mintz. thank you you can email us at baseballbarbiecast at gmail.com that's b-a-r-b cast if you have prospect questions or anything anything else let us know we'll be back on friday with a regular edition without that bum mike farron Whew, thank goodness yeah get him out of thank here thank you to chris tyler for producing as always and we will talk to you all on friday Serious XM Podcasts.